Good morning, everybody. My name is Darren. If I haven't met you before, please come and say hello afterwards. I uh, met a friend earlier that I hadn't met before, and uh, he tells me that he's been coming to church here for 12 months. So there you go. Maybe you've been around for a while. Come and say hello. Be good to be good to meet you. Well, let me start with a bit of a personal question. Do you consider yourself a good judge of character? Can you pick a dodgy salesman? How successful have you been at choosing reliable friends? It's an important life skill, wouldn't you say? But so many of us are easily fooled in both directions. Uh, We trust people that are unreliable and we overlook those who are good people. So here's some pictures. Have a look at these um, faces up on the screen and you tell me, are they trustworthy? Big thumbs up or, or not? This is the first one. What do you reckon? Guy look trustworthy? His name is Frank Abagnale. It's a photo of him when he was younger. His uh, career as a con man and fraudster was given the big screen treatment in uh, Catch Me If You Can. You might remember that. Frank successfully impersonated an airline pilot, a doctor, a lawyer, amongst other things, and was eventually caught out cashing bad checks. (laughs) But he conned thousands of people in his short career. Okay, here's the second one. Anyone recognise this young lady? Princess Elizabeth, that's right. This photo was taken back in uh, 1945 when she trained as a car mechanic. Uh, If you had taken your car in for service, you know, 1945, you might have been none the wiser as to who it was looking after your car. Here's the last one, one more. This is Mr. Shyam Akara. What do you reckon? Does he look look reliable? He kind of doesn't, does he? Grainy photo, standing in front of the Louvre. He is, in fact, a fraud. This man posed as Dr. Sarong Chitale, and he worked in New South Wales public hospitals for more than 10 years. Uh, When he was discovered in 2014, he fled Australia and is still wanted for his crimes, actually. Look, all of us have been caught out at some stage, um, and if you haven't yet, it's only a matter of time. Um, Some tricksters are very good at what they do. Um, And sometimes it's just inconvenient and embarrassing. You know, you get sold a dodgy car. But it's a much bigger deal when lives are at risk. When someone's impersonating a doctor or a pilot. Today, we're talking about the highest stakes of all. Eternal life or death. Already in John's Gospel... Jesus has made the most outrageous claims. Chapter 5, 24. Whoever hears my word has eternal life and will not be judged. Chapter 6, verse 40. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. He's at it again here in chapter 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me... As scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. 
Can we trust Jesus? How can we make a right judgment about Jesus? It's fairly important that we get this right, isn't it? If he is speaking the truth, we should throw our lot in with him, 100%. But what if he's just another trickster? Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. Father in heaven, we do thank you for sending your son into our world. And we thank you for making sure that these stories about him and his life are available for us. Please, we pray that you'd be working amongst us now by your spirit. Please enable me to speak clearly and truthfully. Uh, Please give us all ears to hear what you have to say to us today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an outline of what I'm planning to say in that news sheet. You might like to follow along. There's even some little blanks that you can fill in if you find yourself nodding off. Okay, there is a rising tide of conflict in this chapter. Jesus is a marked man. You might remember that he'd healed an invalid back in John chapter 5 on the Sabbath and the Jewish power brokers were angry. And when he followed that up by claiming to be equal with God, they were angry enough to want him dead. There's also a lot of confusion In this chapter, as people try to come to grips with Jesus, wherever he goes, whenever he opens his mouth, disputes follow. People are outraged, they're excited, they're divided. They know he's significant, but is he a good guy or a crook? And how do you make that judgment? Verse 24 is a key verse. Jesus says, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So I've chosen just three of the ways that people judged by mere appearances in this chapter, which meant they got Jesus wrong. First, on the basis of miracles. Jesus' brothers saw the miracles that he was doing and drew the wrong conclusion. See in verse 3, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So the brothers thought, naturally enough I suppose, that Jesus wanted to become a public figure, to be famous and great. So why not do some big time healing for the crowds? That's a fast track to popularity. But that's not what Jesus wanted. Jesus had come to do his Father's will. He's following his Father's timetable. As he says there, my time is not yet here. Doing what God wants will never lead to fame and fortune in this world because, verse 7, I testify that its works, the world's works, are evil. That's the path to getting killed, not to glory. A second way of judging by mere appearances was on the basis of tradition. That's why the Jewish leaders had got their knickers in a knot about the man healed on the Sabbath. They developed these complex sets of rules about how to properly keep the law. In the case of the Sabbath, there were at least 39 categories of things that you weren't allowed to do. So healing and carrying your mat... They weren't actually mentioned in the Old Testament in connection to the Sabbath, but they had grown up as part of the tradition 
that surrounded the Sabbath. So when Jesus healed the man and said, pick up your mat and walk, the Jewish leaders decided that he was a lawbreaker and a deceiver. But Jesus says here, their own practice of circumcision undermines these rigid traditions. A baby boy had to be circumcised on the eighth day. But what if the eighth day happened to be a Sabbath? Circumcision took priority. See in verse 23. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Jesus was interested in the heart of the law. Jesus knew that the Sabbath was all about mankind sharing in God's rest, about wholeness of body and life that we think about when we use the word heaven. Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath. He was bringing it in. Tradition blinded them to the truth about Jesus. A third way of judging by mere appearances was to look at his background, where he came from. Three times in this chapter, people write Jesus off because he comes from Galilee. So on the map here, Galilee is that region up in the north of Palestine on the fringes of Israel between the despised Samaritans and the unwashed nations, far removed from Jerusalem and respectability. So see, for example, in verse 41. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. The irony of it. I mean, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the line of David. And most of John's readers would have known that too. But he'd grown up in Galilee and so many rejected him. We'll see the final rudeness of the Pharisees to Nicodemus in verse 52. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. It's odd, really, that these Bible scholars could have got something like this so wrong. Because we know, at least from the Old Testament prophets, that Jonah and Nahum came from Galilee, and Isaiah chapter 9 says that the Messiah will come from Galilee too. It's all a bit awkward. But they were positive. A man with Jesus' disreputable background was not to be trusted. Miracles, tradition, background, there are others too. Reasons for rejecting Jesus on the basis of appearances, mere appearances. Our own contemporaries might have slightly different reasons for rejecting Jesus, but they're often judging on the basis of mere appearances. Have you ever done that? Perhaps seeing Jesus as ancient history, not educated and scientifically minded like us. Or Jesus just doesn't fit your idea of an impressive person. No, he's not rich. He's not talented. He doesn't have a fashion label. Maybe you think you know what Jesus is on about, enough to dismiss him even without reading the Bible for yourself. Jesus warns us, stop judging by mere appearances. 
Instead, judge correctly. So there is a right way to judge. That's good news, isn't it? We can know the truth about who Jesus is. How? Well, earlier in the Gospels, Jesus has pointed to a number of witnesses that support his claims. There was John the Baptist, the nature of the miraculous works that he was doing, the Old Testament scriptures, they all confirm what Jesus is saying. But here in chapter 7 and verse 17, Jesus puts it another way. Let me pick it up, verse 16. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. See verse 17? Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out. All of a sudden, Jesus takes the spotlight that we've been pointing at him and he spins it round on us. What about our stance in all of this judging? Most people, when they evaluate others, set themselves up as the judge. That's what the people did with Jesus. They judged him by their own standards, their own expectations. When you stop and think about it, that's very short-sighted. No matter who we are, we have such a limited perspective. We often get it wrong. We are not the judge of all the earth. Only God is. So firstly, Jesus is recommending here a stance of humility instead of pride. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Until we acknowledge that God is the boss, we will always be confused. And Jesus is urging us to listen to his teaching before shooting off our mouths about how much we know. We might not know as much as we think we know. Now, I'm not saying that this will be easy for us wealthy, independent, capable people. It rubs us up the wrong way. But it comes with an awesome promise. You will find out if my teaching comes from God. Remember those high stakes, eternal life or death, humility, listening, could be worth a try. It struck me that a lot of the confusion in this chapter could have been cleared up by just humbly asking Jesus, what is your purpose in doing those miracles? Uh, what did you mean by healing that disabled guy on the Sabbath? Even, where were you born? <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? Secondly, when Jesus talks about choosing to do the will of God, how do we know what the will of God is? For Jesus, that's what God has revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. So Jesus is urging a stance of humility and listening. That's important. But he's also saying, go and check out what the Bible says. See if my teaching lines up with God's plans in the Old Testament. And again, so much of the confusion in this chapter could have been avoided if people had known their Old Testaments and looked at Jesus through that lens. 
The miracles were signs showing us who Jesus is. He is the Messiah who brings in God's kingdom. The Sabbath is about mankind sharing in God's rest. Yes, the Messiah came from Bethlehem and he came from Galilee as well. Later in the Bible, in Acts 17, the Jews in a little town called Berea do exactly this. The Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed. You want to make a right judgment about Jesus? It's possible by humbly listening to what Jesus has said in the context of the whole Bible. So, who is Jesus according to what Jesus himself says in this chapter? Firstly, he claims to be God's faithful man. Have a look at uh, verse 28. Then Jesus still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. Jesus is not out there on his own, drawing crowds to inflate his ego. He's supremely conscious that he's on a mission from his father. He's working to this God-given timetable. He can't just do what he wants. He can't do what other people want him to do. He's been sent by God. He's also God's man because he knows God. He says, I am from him. In John 1, he says, I've come from the father's side. He knows him perfectly and intimately. He's also God's man because he's returning to God. Verse 33, Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time and then I'm going to the one who sent me. It's all a bit cryptic in this chapter. We'll talk a bit more about what he means later on. But I think he's saying here, there's only a limited time to hear from me about God. So don't waste this opportunity. Jesus claims to be God's man through and through. He's been sent by God. He knows God. He's returning to God. The second thing that Jesus teaches us here about himself is that he is the thirst quencher. So let me read again from verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Feast of Tabernacles was a great celebration. People flocked to Jerusalem from far away. And during the week-long festival, they had a daily water ritual. Partly this ritual was asking God to bless their crops with rain in the year ahead. Um, partly it reminded the people of how God had provided water for them in the desert when they came out of Egypt. Partly this ritual looked forward to the promised pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. 
With all that in mind, Jesus stands up and shouts out, I am the fulfilment of it all. Come to me and drink. Believe in me and you will be satisfied. He's echoing a few Old Testament scriptures here. Um, Isaiah 55, for example. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Here is Jesus promising graciously to quench the thirst of all who come. It's more than a physical thirst that he's talking about. This is the deep longing for relationship with God. There were promises in the Old Testament of a new age coming, when God would pour out his spirit in a new way, when God would forgive his wayward people and dwell intimately with them. So Ezekiel 36, for example, this is God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Jesus is saying, in me, that promised new age has come. I am the one who will pour the Spirit of God into your lives. It's amazing how Jesus puts it in John seven thirty eight. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. It's a picture not only of a limitless spring bubbling up to eternal life for the believer, but a spring that overflows and pours forth and brings life to the world. Jesus claims to be the thirst quencher for each of us as spiritually thirsty individuals and through us to revive our desperate families and our community and our world. So what do you think? Can we trust this Jesus? These are massive claims. God's faithful man, the thirst quencher. How will you judge? So many who were there in Jerusalem at that Feast of Tabernacles rejected him. They decided he was a deceiver and a fraud. But you are actually in a better position than they were to make a judgment about Jesus. Because what Jesus only hints at in this chapter eventually came to pass. His time, his hour, has come. Of course, Jesus was talking about the climax of his mission when he was revealed to the world as God's saviour and king in his death and his resurrection. Eventually, the Jewish leaders had their murderous way. But they only did what God had planned all along. Jesus willingly laid down his life to take away the sins of the world. And so Jesus demonstrated his utter integrity. 
Remember verse 18. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Jesus was so committed to seeking the glory of his father that he endured death, even death on a cross. On the other side of the cross, we can see even more clearly, Jesus is God's faithful man. And then he was raised to life again and glorified, just as he said would happen. Lots of people saw him. And then Jesus, the risen king, poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and ushered in the new age. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 2. So now all who believe in Jesus can have forgiveness and power to live a new life. And because this is a spiritual thing, it's harder to prove. But the transformation of Jesus' followers then and now is pretty compelling evidence. Like Peter, who went from depressed and terrified to bold and joyful, basically overnight. Or like Stephen, who, as the rocks were raining down on him, prayed that God would forgive his murderers. Something profound happened to them. Perhaps you've seen God work in similar ways in your own life or in the lives of your Christian friends. Jesus is the thirst quencher, just as he claimed. So, are you thirsty? Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink, said Jesus. None of us are truly self-sufficient. We need food and drink. We need friends and family. Most of all, we need forgiveness and relationship with God. We long for eternal life. And that's what Jesus is offering. You might not be aware of your deepest needs yet. Our world is good at throwing up distractions. And many people are eager to chase distractions. But perhaps in those quiet moments, lying awake in bed, you have been aware of your spiritual thirst. I mean, you might have been desperate and searching for some time, I don't know. But I do know that Jesus is the answer. Come to him, trust him, drink deeply from all that he is. His words are gracious and true. His death has paid for your forgiveness. His life guarantees your eternal life. His people are your brothers and sisters. He will never leave you or forsake you. And no matter how long you've been a follower of Jesus, we need to hear this, don't we, brothers and sisters? Because our hearts keep on getting lured away. Con men keep coming into our lives and trying it on. Like Jesus, they claim to be able to meet our needs and give us a better life. What is it for you? A special relationship? A dream job? A holiday? A house? A phone? I'm a bit of a sucker for the next amazing supplement or some um, technology breakthrough. 
Here's a book that I bought on Kindle the other day. It's called Superhuman by Dave Asprey. The bulletproof plan to age backward and maybe even live forever. I think Dave's aged about 322 in that photo. Um, don't you love the word maybe in the title? Because <laughs> Dave knows that he can't really promise eternal life. And I'd be a fool to rely on him. But Jesus does promise to meet our deepest needs. And this is what I found. Only in Jesus' promises does my heart find rest. Assurance that God loves me. Confidence that my sins are forgiven. Hope for eternal life. And that is what we need. If you don't realise that yet, just keep getting old. We can rely on Jesus. He deserves to be our first love, our guiding light, our great hope. Finally then, for those of you who are drinking deeply of the Lord Jesus, are you overflowing? It's an extraordinary picture there in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Is that how you think about yourself? A sparkling stream flowing out to bless all those around you? It should be. As God's Spirit works within us, we are being transformed to be the humble, joyful, loving men and women that we were created to be. We bless others as we serve them and love them. We've all got a long way to go, but God's begun his good work in us and it's beautiful to see. And then we also bless others as we speak and share the life-giving words of the gospel. If people only see our good deeds, they cannot know what motivates us or what has changed us. There are many good neighbours or good Buddhists, even good atheists out there. We want people to glorify Jesus for his work in us, not to glorify us for being good people. So we speak. I'm a Christian, that's why I'm different. Or we invite people to where they can hear others speak of Jesus. Do you remember our vision as the Lakes Church? I reckon it could have been written in response to Jesus' words in this chapter. It's a good one. As a church community, our desire is for Jesus' love and God's word to so fill us and overflow from us that everyone in our region has compelling reason to follow Jesus. It's a great vision, isn't it? Are you on board, brothers and sisters? Are you overflowing? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for sending your son into our world and we praise you for his faithfulness in word and on mission. Thank you for bringing in your promised new age and pouring out your spirit through him. Father, please give us that humility of spirit
That means we listen to Jesus and judge correctly. And as you have promised, please satisfy our deep longings in him. Forgive our sins. Grow our friendship with you. Please fill us with a love for Jesus and for your word that overflows from us, that many in our region might see in our lives and hear in our words compelling reasons to follow Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen.